My name is Sam, and I'm the kind of preaching pastor here, which just means I get to preach a lot, which is awesome. Um, we are in uh, a series called Grace, and there is a small booklet running out uh, on the sidewall and in the back to kind of explain the, the heart of the series and where it's going. It's only five weeks long. If you're new to us, we typically go through books of the Bible, and we've been, through Ma- been in Matthew for a long time, so we thought we'd take a little bit of a breather. And uh, I believe we ended with Matthew 13 or 14. And we'll return to that uh, a few weeks from now and continue with Matthew till the end of time where Jesus returns. I don't know. It's going to take a long time to get through that. That's why most people don't preach Matthew, I think. It's just so long. But I love it because uh, he's really a teacher and that's really what I am. Uh, so we're spending five weeks studying um, really the grace of God in salvation and particularly in the letter to the Ephesians and really just the first chapter and really just the 14 verses, first 14 verses of the first chapter, though we'll, we'll go around uh, in other parts of Ephesians today. And last week uh, was a doozy. Uh, last week we, we sat on the first couple verses that said that before the world was created, before there was light and darkness and, and creatures and land and water and anything, God made a plan. And He had planned for grace before anything was created, before time existed, for we existed. He planned to create a people, and He planned for those people to fall into sin. Didn't surprise Him, is what I mean when we say that. He expected it. If you're planning for grace before the foundation of the world, the only reason you need grace is because of sin. So you're planning for sin. And He planned to rescue a chosen people by making them object of His grace. And we saw this as the story unfolds with Israel and climaxes with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's how He planned to accomplish all of this. By sending His Son to die the death and live the life that we should have. But grace didn't end there. He planned to, uh, through that sacrifice, to adopt those people into His family. He planned to lovingly, over time, conform them to the image of His Son. Spiritually, that has happened. When He sees us, He sees Christ for those who have faith in Him. But, let's be honest, I don't look much like Jesus now and neither do you. Right? We're getting better perhaps, but we're never going to fully conform to that image until we're dead. And by God's grace, that's what He planned to do. To restore us to all perfection. Restore us to everything He intended us to be and to live with Him forever. And He did all of that. All of that planning was for one reason. And that was really the heart of the sermon last week. Why did He create it all? Because He didn't need to. It was for His glory. It was to display and declare His glory, to magnify His name, and, and to display His character. That's deep doctrine, right? You're going to go, that's heavy. You go home like, what did He just say? Choosing, chosen, like that's just, whew. It's always reminded that this is really not the first, or I should say the last letter written to Ephesians. In the book of Revelation, you have several churches, seven of them actually addressed by Jesus, and Ephesus is one of them. And in that letter, you find out that Ephesus got their doctrine right. Ephesus grew in their doctrine, and this is Paul unloading some really heavy doctrine here. They got that right, but they 
were commended for their doctrine. They were commended for their Bible-thumping belief in what was true, and yet they were condemned because of their lack of love. And so as we go through this, I want to caution all of us because I love theology. I love doctrine. I love to sit on, on all the things that God has revealed and then just kind of wonder about the things He's left of mystery. But if we're not careful, you can become puffed up with knowledge and puffed up with theology and lose your first love and lose your loving aspect of your life and really responsibility to love altogether. Now, honestly, the doctrines of grace don't always feel loving to us. But interestingly enough, last week I said some of the two most frequently used words in the book of Ephesians were grace and mystery. There's a word that appears just a little bit more. Can you guess what that is? Love. In this letter. Fourteen times. In love He predestined us, it says. In Ephesians chapter 2 it says, because of the great love which He loved us. Love's all over the place. And though it doesn't feel loving when we start talking about God choosing to show grace to some and not to others, the problem is usually that we want to define our love apart from the Bible. Whether that be culture, whether it be our experience, or just what we feel love actually is. Here's the hard part about dealing with some of these doctrines is that you can't separate God's love from other aspects of His character. You can't just dissect God into the pieces you like or the pieces that are comfortable. And you can't even look at them completely independently, though you can study, as we are, grace and love by themselves. The truth is, though, that God's love can't be separated from His holiness. God's love can't be separated from His justice. God's love can't be separated from His wrath. They go together, and you go, oh, it's like a paradox. I know! How do those work? I don't know! But they do, and perfectly so. And the question is, are we going to be okay with sitting in that mystery? Are we going to be okay with going as far as the Bible goes and then not going further, at least not arguing over what's further? God intends, we do know this, to display His full name in all this. First, middle, and last. Right? Not that God has a middle name. I'm using figurative metaphor here. Right? But it's not just one part of His name, it's all of His name. And if God were only just and only wrathful, all of creation would be rightly and justly destroyed. But, we see that He is loving and merciful and gracious and perfectly so, and all those things all at the same time. So that's the God that we're worshiping today. That's the God that we serve. A God that go, I can't comprehend that exactly. We're all more comfortable with God's that we can put a little boxes and control and make us feel good and do what I want. And that's just not how God intends to function or be. So our series, though, is intended to elevate the grace of God. And it's not trying to do that exclusively, but it is trying to do it explicitly. We're going to look at grace and, and view all these things as grace. It's God's grace that saves us. 
It's God's grace that changes us. It's God's grace that keeps us saved. It's all grace. And there's a huge comfort in that. There should be. A huge comfort in the gracious sovereignty of God. Because if all life is dependent upon my effort, if my salvation is dependent upon me being able to figure out God, if my eternal life is dependent upon me making sure I get my sin figured out, there is much to fear. There is much to fear. But if it is completely dependent upon a holy, powerful God who loves and who moves first and doesn't move away, then there's much to rejoice over. And that's what I hope we get done with this. We're like, whoa! I mean, I suck, but God's awesome! Right? That would be a great ending to today. So let's just sit on for a second and ask, why does God have to step first, right? Why does God have to take the first step? And so Paul starts in verse 7 there with this word, redemption. And he says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. See, I, I think that most of us only wonder or misunderstand God's grace and, and start to freak out when we hear things about election and choosing and predestination when we misunderstand the doctrine of sin. And if you understand the doctrine of sin, which like, really, we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin? Yes. And by the time you end, you're like, oh, rad, sin, right? The doctrine of sin, if it's understood, if you look at it, every aspect of it, you will understand why God did what He did, I think, I hope. But he begins with this word redemption. And the word redemption um, has a, the meaning of, of paying a ransom to release someone from captivity. Okay? To re- redeem someone, you're talking about delivering someone from slavery. So Paul talks up, begins with saying, in him we have redemption. So that implies something about our current state. That we are in captivity. That we are enslaved. That we're in a situation that we can't get out of under our own power. And the, the picture of redemption or the explanation of redemption is most clearly seen in the story of the Exodus. If you're not familiar with the Exodus, right? It's the second book of the Bible. It's a story of when God's people were led into Egypt after a long series of events that ended with Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, right? Twelve sons of Israel where he became second in command through a series of events, all evil, but God meant it for good, and brings his family down there to save them from a famine. Well, after many years, they kind of forget about Joseph, and his people are enslaved. Not only that, they start growing, because God's blessing them. And they're growing and growing and growing, and the Pharaoh freaks out, because he thinks they're going to revolt someday. So what does he start to do? Slaughter their kids. So they're enslaved. They're working to death, and their kids are being killed so that they don't continue to reproduce. This is the situation that they're in. And if you think about this, it's not as if the Hebrews can go, you know, guys, let's just stop being slaves. You know what? I I think I've had enough of my kids being slaughtered. Um, I'm really getting a lot of calluses on my hands and kind of worn out, so let's just leave. It's not happening. They're enslaved. They're in captivity. They don't have a choice. And it's a horrible, 
horrible experience. So when we think about redemption, we have to think about our situation, what we're in. Israel gives us this picture of God showing up and doing something that they could never have done on their own. They never could have accomplished. And they didn't even contribute anything to it, right? So the question is, what makes grace necessary? Why does God have to graciously elect and and make this plan and do what he did or what we saw him planning last week? Well, here's what I believe the Bible teaches. And I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures, so you just might as well get your pen ready because you just want to write them all down. We're going to go through a ton. Okay. All men, every man, every woman that is ever born is sinful. They are sinful by nature. They are sinful by choice. We know this by many verses, but Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all mankind because all sin. Right? We are born sinful by nature. We are born sinful by choice. And men, by nature, their default mode, and if you have kids, you see this, right? It doesn't take long for them to learn how to be selfish about their toys or to hit. Like, I never taught you that. Where'd that come from? Sin. And obviously, it exponentially gets greater and more colorful as we get older. But all men, all the time, are only and always sinning apart from God. Men in their flesh. Men in their flesh cannot please God. How do I know that? That's what the Bible says. In Psalm 51, as David is thinking about his own sin and actually confessing all the sin that he had committed as king, adultery and murder and all these things, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Starts early. Romans 8.8 says, Therefore those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What does that mean? I think it means that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? All we're trying to... It's funny how we look at Scripture and go, that can't mean that. Like, let's just take it for what it says. And just sit on it. Okay, so men in the flesh cannot please God. So men, in, in some sense, are always sinning before God. We'll go further to say that I believe men are unable to choose God. Unable. What do I mean? They are beyond self-help. And we'll go deep into this in a second. But they're 10,000 foot level. Men are broken. They are beyond self-help. They cannot do good. They cannot understand good. They cannot desire good. Seriously? Yes. Men cannot do good. Men cannot understand good. Men cannot desire good. How do I know that? The Bible. Romans 3. Maybe you're familiar with it. It just says what I said. Or I said what it said. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands God. Is there anyone who understands God? No one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. No one? No one. All have turned aside. What do you mean by all? I think in the Greek it means all. Okay? Not a Greek expert, but it means all. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Just in case you're thinking, well, God, there's a really good guy. Not even one. 
What does that say? We're bad. We're unable to choose God. Okay, well, maybe I could be, I could maybe get out of that, break out of it. No, we're unwilling to choose God as well. Loyal to Satan, enslaved by our flesh, and in love with the world. John 3.19, a couple verses just past the famous football verse, John 3.16, right? It says, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people, people, not some people, people, loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What does that mean? Okay, very simple. Men love sin more than they love God. Men love themselves more than they love God. Men love others more than they love God. Men love creation more than they love God. Men love everything better and more than God, period. Now, we think, wow, that sounds really bad, right? Yeah, it is. But we'll say this before we show you how bad it really is. Men aren't as evil as they can be. Right? In other words, men don't do the most evil possible. Even the worst of men and women. Right? Even Hitler, right? We think, like, who's bad? Like, who's bad? Okay, we'll go with Hitler. Hitler's bad. Well, even Hitler probably helped an old lady across the street. Okay? Even Hitler didn't wipe out villages when a priest begged for him not to. He could have. So, men aren't as evil as they possibly could. No one is. You can think of the worst guy possible. They could be eviler, if that's even a word. Okay? Men, and I know we're thinking like, well, I know people who do good. Well, men certainly do what we're going to call good, although the Bible says no one does good, right? Well, there's things that we call good. But I will say this, any man apart from God, in other words, a man in the flesh, a man who does not put faith in Christ, a man who does not love the Lord, any man who does good, and there are many who do what we would call good, they never do it in order to please or honor God. So their motivation doesn't have to be the most evil possible, but it certainly isn't to bring glory to God. It might be self-glory. It might be glory or happiness to somebody else. But Romans 14.23 says, right, anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Sit on that for a while. Like, what does that mean? I don't know, but I think it's talking about this. That's why Paul can say, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So there is a way by which we cannot glorify God by eating, and then there are people that do that. So man is totally evil in the sense that every aspect of his life, your thoughts, your feelings, your attitudes, your intellect, your perceptions, right? Think about when you're in a relationship. You both speak sinfully and hear sinfully. Everything is affected by it. You don't think the worst, you don't say the worst, but it's there affecting everything that we are in life. But we're not absolutely evil. We're not the worst speakers or the most violent or the most lustful we can be. But it gets worse. The Bible uses very particular words to describe us. So I'm going to lay them all out. And, and 
All I'm trying to do is answer this question, why is grace necessary? Why does it have to be grace? The Bible is very clear. So if you turn over to Ephesians 2, in that same letter, obviously, it says this, that men are dead. It says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience. It's hot in here, isn't it? I'm going to turn the baby on. You might not think it's hot, but it's stinking sweaty up here. All right. So men are dead. What's that mean? Men are dead. Now, obviously, we're talking spiritually, but just think for a second what a dead man's capable of. Really good at laying down. Right? It's about it. Men are dead. It goes on further, in case we haven't figured it out. Men are called children of wrath. Ouch! Really, I'm a child of wrath? And if I am made in the image of my parent, then I am wrathful, violent, hateful? I am subject to wrath? Perhaps under God? Okay. That doesn't sound very positive. Goes on. Men are enslaved. Right? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So before grace, before Christ, before faith, we're enslaved to sin. We don't have a choice in the same way that Israel's were captive, they couldn't get out of their situation. In other words, you can't stop sinning. You are dead. You are a child of wrath. You are enslaved. Okay, this is man in his fallen state. Gets worse. Men are blind. This is, I'm just describing what the Bible describes from us. We're just taking out the descriptions of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, and even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the believers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ to His image. They are blind to the glory of Christ. Now, last time I checked, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but I'm going to lay it on pretty heavy. A blind man doesn't just choose to see. I blind my whole life. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to look around now. That's not the way it happens. Any more than a dead man says, I feel like being alive now. Or an enslaved man says, you know what? I'd like to be free, please. The Bible also calls this man natural. What does that mean? It contrasts it with spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we impart this in words, Paul speaking, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. The natural person, implying those who are not spiritual, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Okay, so the natural man is not even able to understand spiritual things. Not only do they not desire to, they couldn't if they did. It goes on. Men are hostile enemies. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God. Okay? How many enemies go, 
okay, I just feel like not shooting you now. If you're my enemy, I hate you. Right? I think it's interesting. This is kind of a side. That's okay. I like side. All right, bird walk here. Pharaoh, right? Heart getting hard. The Lord hardening his heart. Oh my gosh, I could lose. Well, don't assume that there's anything or anything is, is a soft heart. Like, every heart is hard. So it's not like he's hardening something that's not already hard. But even a hardened man will break. Right? He hardened him because even a man of the flesh will give up. He'll give in like that's just too much. That doesn't mean he believes. It just means like, I'm tapping out. I don't love you. I don't want to worship you, but man, this is a lot of pain. So he hardens him and hardens him and hardens him because he's an enemy of God. He hates God. in Romans also says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Again, it cannot. And lastly, Romans 1, the famous passage, we are ultimately false worshipers. We ultimately suffer from a worship disorder. But no, though we know God exists, though we know He is glorious, though we know we can see Him, not only just creation, but in our hearts, we know that moral rightness that exists, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship the creation rather than the Creator. We're false worshipers. We are idolaters. Each with our own special little idol of choice. Though we have a trophy room full of it, we have one with special lights on it in the corner like, this is one I like. Maybe it's sexual addiction. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's relation. Whatever. But even if the lights go down on that one, the lights can come up on a bunch of others. We're false worshipers. So here's the question, right? What has sin really done to us? So I'll give you two options, and you will clearly see why I'm saying grace is necessary because I believe in one. Let's say a man falls off a building. <gasps> Maybe he's silent. Who knows? And he lands, and he's got broken legs and ribs and and he's all scratched up, right? And, but he's saying, he's like, man, I'm really hurt. Help me. Sin may have done that to you. What I believe is that that man fell off that building and he is a puddle of goo that can't even bubble up a request for help because he is dead, squished, goo. <laughs> That's what I believe sin has done to us. You either believe sin has affected you in such a way that, man, it's made it really difficult to swim, and I'm kind of drowning and and choking, and it's just really hard, but I can still call, help, lifeguard, help me. Or you believe that sin has made you a dead body on the bottom of the ocean, and you are fish food. Those are the two options. And we talk about What the Bible says, you are dead, you are enslaved, you are an enemy of God, you are blind, you are natural, cannot understand anything, you are a false worshiper. What does it seem to lead us toward? seems to lead us toward a state of hopelessness, a state of complete, I cannot do anything on my own. I have no power, no self-help is going to happen. And so we go, what about about free will, right? (gasps) The F word, right? What about free will? 
Do men have free will? And I'll say, yes. <gasps> men freely choose what their hearts desire. They freely choose what their hearts desire. And they are 100% accountable and responsible for those choices. The question is, what do sinful, blind, enslaved, hostile, natural men desire? Everything but God. Anything but God. What is governing the desires of a simple man's heart? Sin. And that is the stronger desire. That is the overwhelming, the governing desire. I'm going to steal Jason Lewis's image. It was awesome. We were talking about last week. And he said, look, uh, maybe he has six-pack abs. I don't know. He's like, I, I desire six-pack abs, right? But I desire ice cream a lot more, right? That's a great image. Like, there you go. There's a stronger, overwhelming, governing desire that is relentless. Men are free, free to choose everything but God because simply their hearts never, ever, ever, ever desire Him. Men are not free to trust Christ because men are enslaved. And they're enslaved with joy. Imagine a man put in a prison who set it on fire himself, and as you're pulling him out of it, he doesn't want you to. That's sin. That's captivity. That's enslavement. A man just does not freely decide to be alive. Doesn't freely decide, I'm not going to be blind anymore. I'm just going to understand spiritual things now. I'm no longer going to be a slave. I'm going to stop fighting God. I'm going to worship the thing that I hate right now just because I feel like it. That doesn't happen on his own. Grace. Grace comes in. What has to happen for a man to respond? For a blind man to see? For a dead man to... Grace has to happen. If we think of John 3, before a dead man can respond, something must happen to give him the ability. Jesus speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Right? He's thinking, I can't, I ain't born again. Am I going to crawl up inside my mom's womb again? That's weird, Jesus. Right? Doesn't get it. He's like, Hello. And Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It just happens. By God's grace, it happens. And how, how does it happen? Like, what's the, what's the mechanism for that? And so, I read last week a passage in Romans 8 which really kind of goes through the order of salvation that we're talking about. Like, what, what happens first? Like, okay, so we know God plans, and then what happens? How does it work out, and how do we get to final restoration? And Romans 8 said, For those He, fore, 
For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, which we talked about last week, He called. He called. How is someone born again? I believe there is an internal, internal operation of the Spirit that we call a call. That we call a call. That is described as a call. It's when Jesus calls your name. Your name. He calls you by name. Reveals Himself to you so that you will call upon His. God calls you through His Word by His Spirit, I believe. It's an inward call that kind of works with an outward proclamation. The Word and the Spirit kind of come together. How do I know that? It's what the Bible says. Romans 10 says, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What does Paul say? Who's going to call? Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Awesome. Totally believe that. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who have never heard? And how are they to hear with Him here without someone preaching? So, we preach the Word and God saves. There you go. I preach the Word. You proclaim the Word. God does the saving. My job is to proclaim. His job is to save and change hearts. I have no power in myself to persuade, to convince anyone to believe anything. I have the Word that God has given and He says it has power infused with the Spirit and God takes care of it. God has decided He's made a choice to make this the mechanism through which He calls. But not everyone responds when the Word comes, right? Not everyone, be, not everyone will leave here a Christian today. Not everyone responds. Get ready to read a really disturbing verse. But it's also a very clarifying verse. In the book of Acts, right? The church is growing. Preaching is happening. People are becoming saved. But not everyone is being saved. Even as Joe and Joseph, Joseph, Jethro, whatever, two people are standing next to each other. One believes and one doesn't. Why? They just heard the same thing. Because the Spirit is working in one and not the other. And that's not up to us. Acts 13 says this, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. So you got the Word. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." This is where the big shift comes. Paul's been going to Jews. He's like, I'm going to Gentiles now. Of which in Acts 9, Jesus said, this will be your mission. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, here you go. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. What? What? As many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Not everyone believes. 
And the appointment of who shall believe has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God's purposes and God's timing. Because we ask ourselves, well, why doesn't God call everyone? Like, why doesn't, why doesn't God just affect, call everyone? It's a good question. And it's answered very simply for the purpose of his glory. I don't know. I have to rest on what I do know. Because he doesn't really reveal why he doesn't call everyone, though he expresses that it's his desire to do so. I desire all men to be saved, the Bible says more than once. We can imagine that his refusal to do so glorifies God this way. It magnifies his justice. It magnifies his holiness. Because we can't dare say that God is wrong in punishing sinners who rebelled against him. I think the better question is, why does he call anyone? We want to wrestle. Why does he call everyone? Why does he call anyone? Grace. Grace. We have an answer of, why does he call everyone? He doesn't have to. He can justly punish and kill all of us. But by grace, he calls whom he calls. And then you go, why doesn't he call people at the same time? Right? Why not in the same way? And I've sat on that for a while, because, right, you got, you got Paul who was led for a while to kill Christians, and then he called them. So why that? And I was reminded by um, my sister-in-law's recent transformation. After 40 years, well, I should say after 20 years of life in a dark part of the world, a dark lifestyle, I know many at the women's retreat probably heard her story. You go, why at age 40? What? You know how many times I preached her the gospel? You know how many times she heard the gospel? Why is God's timing like that? I don't know, but what I see in her is this. Because of the 20 years of darkness that she experienced, she is equipped to go back into that darkness and preach the gospel to those who are still there. Unlike anyone else is that I know. And so you begin to wonder, like, what about God's timing? Like, for the purpose of His glory. You realize the world is in all kinds of darkness and all kinds of depths of evil, and He takes people out of there and calls them into the kingdom of light, and then He sends them back into darkness to proclaim it. And when you settle on the fact that God is about His glory, showing His grace, showing His power to redeem, you begin to understand maybe some of His timing or at least rest in the fact that he knows what the snarf he's doing. So what happens when someone's called? Like what, is that, what actually is going on in their heart? So Ephesians, I think, gives us the insight. Ephesians chapter 2 begins, right? We're dead in our trespasses and sins, which we once walked. So he's talking to Christians who were there and no longer are there. So he's following the course of this world, following the prince of power in the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So all of mankind was like this. And what happens? But God. God loved the buts. Right? But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love in which He loved us. Even when we were dead, even when we were blind, even when we were enslaved, even when we were holding guns against Him, made us alive. He made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show what? The immeasurable riches of His grace. Why is He doing this? To display the riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is why this theology, these truths should humble us. Because the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. You don't believe because you one day got smart enough and figured it out. You don't believe because one day you just felt like, you know, I just want to start loving Jesus. You were dead and God made you alive. Reminds me of the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus waits for his friend to die before he goes and visits him. He's told he is sick and basically waits. Shows up, he's already in the tomb. He opens up the tomb, and what does he do? He calls to him. Calls to a dead man. What has to happen before that man can respond and come out of his stinky grave? He has to be made alive. Blood's got to start flowing so he can say, yes, Jesus, here I come. If he's not made alive first, he will not do anything. He will not respond to God's call. We call this regeneration. That's what the title, like man's regeneration, his resurrection, is made alive before he can respond to faith. I know from our perspective, it always looks like we're choosing God. And I say, yeah, I believe you are choosing God, but not before he chose you. Not before he started that work in you. You had a heart of stone. And every time Jesus spoke, it's bouncing off you. Don't hear it. And until our surgeon graciously reached in and said, I'm putting a heart of flesh in there, then everything changed. He gave you a new heart. And He gave you new desires. And He gave you a new perspective. And He gave you a new relationship with Him and a new disposition even towards your sin and a new love for others and a new understanding of yourself, that's all from God. If God doesn't step in, you will continue in your desires, you will continue in your disposition towards sin, which means you love it, and you will continue your disposition towards God, which is you hate Him. But when He steps in and makes you alive, that creates new desires and a new heart. And I wish we could say, wow, Everything is wonderful. I don't sin anymore. But we do, and you know that. But now you're conscious of a war going on in your heart. What does Galatians 5 say? The flesh is against the Spirit. Before God acts and regenerates your heart and gives you the Spirit of life, there is no war. There is only flesh. 
And then it comes in, he goes, why do I sin now? Yes, you sin. But how do you feel when you do? What is your disposition towards sin? And if it disgusts you, if you fight it, there's no fight in a man of the flesh. I'm not saying he's absolutely as evil as he can be, but there's no fight. When there's a fight, guess what? That's the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God fighting. And you may lose an occasional battle, but Jesus Christ has already won the war. But the fact that you know a war is there, the fact that you feel that war is there, that tension is there, shows that you are alive. So the question is, when, when God calls, is this just an offer of freedom? Is this just, hey, if you want to be free, you can? No. It is freedom. It is liberty. It is God making us alive so we can respond to His call. God didn't just offer the Israelites freedom if they would just follow Him. He secured their freedom. And Jesus secured our freedom with His death. His sacrifice was the ransom for our redemption. And He didn't pay off Satan. He didn't pay off the world. He paid off God, whose wrath we were under. And through faith, which is a gift, that faith itself is the gift. You who call in the name of Jesus Christ only do so because Jesus Christ has given you faith. You have been saved grace through faith. You have gone from what is dead and you have been made alive. You have gone from being children of wrath to children of the Father. You've gone from being slaves to free, from blind men to those who can see, from natural to spiritual, from enemies to friends, from false worshipers to true worshipers. God has done all that. What makes God's grace so amazing and His love so gracious is looking and knowing and believing how evil and unloving we actually are. Keller says often that the gospel is believing and knowing that you are more sinful than you will ever admit, but more loved than you could possibly imagine. The cross declares God's holiness and our sinfulness at the same time declares God's love for us. So let's Step back and go, well, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? Okay, Three simple things and we'll end this. In my prayers, this brings us to a place of joy as we see, man, I'm that unlovable and yet God loves. That while we're still sinners, He demonstrates His love for us by sending Christ to die. First and foremost, the doctrine of sin explains what's wrong with the world. It explains that the world is broken because it hates God. The problem is an internal one, not an external one. And when you sit on that, you realize that the only true solution, it's not education, it's not legislation, it's not violence and force, the only true solution is God's grace. The only true hope is God's grace. The only real solution to fix the world is the grace of God. 
And so we get a place of, I'm going to hope and grace. Doesn't mean you don't work for those other things to, to, to help and to bless the world and, and to, to kind of demonstrate and live out the justice of God as we love others as we're supposed to, but it is to say that our true hope, our pure hope, is in the grace of God to fix something that's an internal problem. That's the same for the world, that's the same for individuals, that's the same for everything. We hope in grace. But I think, secondly, when you sit in the doctrine of grace, because you can always look at like, look how messed up the world is. Yeah, they are so jacked. I mean, wow, I'm going to pray for them because God's the only one that's going to save them. Right? Think about you. When you sit in the doctrine of grace, you come face to face with the darkness that was you and at times is you. We all need grace. I need grace. We all need rescue. I still need it. And the doctrine of grace and doctrine of sin, honestly, in light of the grace of God, shows that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. If we can be a church that can be honest about our sin, can be open about our weaknesses, can confess, confess our sins to one another, share our old stories and our present struggles together because we believe in the doctrine of sin, but we believe wholeheartedly in the doctrine of grace together. What a beautiful community to be a part of. Typically, communities believe in one or the other too strongly. Only sin and not enough grace, or only grace and not enough holiness of God. The truth is, we need to be a gospel community where it's safe to confess our sins with each other and that we love each other enough not to let each other stay there. We live grace. And the moment we stop living in the grace of God, which demands we come face to face and honest and open with our sin, is the moment the life gets sucked out of this church. Because we all stop being fake, start being fake. And as Brian preached a couple weeks ago, fellowship is dependent upon our confession. We don't live in the light because that takes all the dirt away. That shows the dirt. That's why we're afraid to come into the light. But if we live in grace, we don't have to live in the fear of being rejected because we know Christ knew all of our sin and He didn't reject us. And so I can live with you and go, you know, you can tell me your darkness. You can tell me your brokenness. I'm not going to go, good luck with all that, right, and walk away. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I might admonish you to say, you know what, you need to stop doing that. I'm going to be gracious and loving, and you're hopefully be gracious and loving with me when I screw up, because I will. And lastly, we hope in grace, we live in grace, and we preach grace. If we truly believe that the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit, creates new life, then we tell everybody. When we preach the riches of God's grace, people are saved. And if you today are here and you maybe for the first time recognize how sinful and broken you are, how rebellious you are, how 
how far short you have fallen of God's standard? Because you may have not hated, but I bet you haven't loved as you ought. If you're coming, if you're feeling that, if that sense of like, man, I, I am broken, I need rescue, that's God. That's the Spirit of God in you. And so I compel you to respond, to repent, to confess that, you know what? You can't save yourself. The law and, and what we talked about today was intended to show, let me show you how bad you are, how in need you are, how in need of rescue you are. And if you get to the place like, yeah, man, I really, I, I can't do this on my own. Yes, that's the Spirit of God in you. Respond. And I pray you will. And you'll join us as we take communion. And we celebrate, rejoice that, man, I am so messed up. That's what we're doing, right? Take communion, coming up and going, I'm so messed up, so broken, so my, my sin is so bad that it required the death of the Son of God to cover it. But my God is so loving that He sent His Son to die for it. It's both. Let's rejoice today. Let's sing like we believe that today. That we live in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father God, I am humbled by Your graciousness. Forgive me, Lord, and forgive anyone else who isn't honest with their sin who believe we're stronger than we are, who believe we're not as dirty as we are, who believe we can see better than we actually can or understand better than we actually can. We're bad. We're broken. You've known it since the beginning. And by grace, you're finally showing it to us. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I pray as we come face to face with our brokenness, Lord, that we won't sit in despair because of what You have done to make us alive, what You have done to redeem us from captivity, what You have done with a great plan to restore us and be with us again. You have shown us grace. We don't deserve Your love. We have not earned Your love. You have just loved. You have chosen to love. You have chosen to forgive. So I pray, Father, for those hearts who are here that they will receive that. That You will not allow them to sit in a place where they just see their darkness. They will see the great love that You have for them. The free forgiveness that You offer them. That You, Father, will call more people to Yourself. And they will believe that Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins in their place. And that Jesus Christ rose from the dead to give them new life and a new identity and a new joy. May the name of Jesus be lifted up high this morning. It's in His name we pray and we sing with joy. Amen.